So today is meditating the modern way. Like I alluded to before I started, what that actually means is my way. (laughs) Well, the way that I teach now, anyway. I operate a process of continuous improvement. If I encounter a practice, doesn't matter what it is, I'll try it out. I've been meditating for quite a while now. I think I'm a pretty good starting point for something that's a new meditation or a new day-to-day practice. If I think it's worthy, then you know I run several sessions a week, and often I get a session with just experienced students, so I'll try it out on them, and then I'll elicit feedback. And the, the way that I do that is just by asking open questions. How was it? Tell me what happened. And see, then if their experience is similar to mine, then there's a level of consistency there. Depending on what it is, I might introduce it into my courses and my training. And as a result of that, what I've taught has changed. And the most obvious change that I'm sure you're all aware of is that I used to focus a lot on following the breath meditation and now I focus more on the meditation of no meditation. There's just an example of how this works. It isn't just the meditations that I've been focusing on. I've introduced a sleep program into the courses. And there's a new area of focus as a result of that. I do a little bit of an explanation about sleep. I explain all the meditations that help you to sleep and how they work later on in the course What we can do is review people's progress if they've engaged in it. And one of the things that I do in the regular meditation classes and smaller courses is I explain to people where you can use this to to sleep and you can use that to sleep. And of course, every so often I do a session just on sleep. And so if you go onto the More Than Just Mindfulness podcast, can't remember the session number, you'll find one there. It's all about sleep. That's a way that I've learned of something that I need to to teach to benefit my students. And then the other thing, of course, is, is the whole way that I approach it, the methodology, you could say. And the methodology started off as, you know, here's this following the breath, you do that. That's it. That's, where, that's as far as most meditation teachers go. You either do the following the breath or you don't. If you don't, you don't get the benefits. If you do, you do. And then they, they might introduce another couple of meditations. But it isn't as simple as that because the mind's not simple and choice is not a simple thing. So there are a whole load of influences on a choice. There's your intuition... There's your instinct. Instinct's huge. When all of these things are in conflict, instinct will take over. This is why you know, people panic in situations, is because their instinctual responses take over. Then there's intuition, which is basically we've learned to respond in a particular way. And then there's habit, which is something that we do over and over and over again. And then there's emotion... And finally, 
is our intentions. This is why changing habits are so hard. Gaining a new habit or stopping an old habit is probably the most difficult thing that human beings do in their lives. The result of that, there's a, a new science of habit formation. And so I've studied the salient points. And so I introduce these from time to time. So as you can see, there's a change to the methodology as well. I started off just saying to people, OK, you have to do the following the breath. I still say that, but I don't just leave it there. It's like, you know, up to you, take it or leave it. Because of all of these other influences on our life, it's really difficult to sit down, meditate for 15 minutes every single day doing something like following the breath. And there's all sorts of consequences to that. It's actually a rocky road just in itself. Of course, there are all sorts of other influences arising in our lives that might make it impossible for us to maintain a practice. So in, in addition to just saying to people, there you go, you do these meditations, these are the meditations you do and here's how I teach you, as well as that, I spent a long time trying to soften the practice. So for example, only 15% of new meditators can sit down and do the following the breath meditation find that it calms their mind that means for most people it makes your mind busier now that's important because that's why you're there you're there because your mind's busy everybody knows meditation calms their mind so people come along and they learn to meditate because they want to calm their mind so if I give them a practice and their mind becomes busy they're getting the opposite of what they want so I learned that certain other meditations that I refer to as the supporting meditations, and that's a reflection of how I meditate. The supporting meditations help to calm your mind better than the following the breath. Following the breath is a pivotal practice. It's important. There was a change there as I introduced the supporting practices. And I also found as many ways as possible of softening the practice so that it's less uncomfortable because it can be an uncomfortable experience meditating depending on the contents of your mind. Let's say there was a graph and you had the people with the happy minds at one end and you had the people with the unhappy minds at the other end. It's far more likely that someone with an unhappy mind is going to come and learn to meditate. What that means is they're bringing the baggage of their unhappy mind with them into their meditation. And so how do we approach that? This was the thrust of what I taught. But recently, having spent some time on the science of habit formation and also having refocused on frictionless meditations, which aren't actually meditations, this is the meditation of no meditation that I'm talking about, which we'll do. What that does is it, it's a frictionless experience that gives you a little bit of mindfulness and also a little bit of meditation. So there's a bit of meditation in there and there's a bit of mindfulness in the meditation of no meditation, especially the meditation of no meditation for sound. And that the science of habit formation tells us 
that to successfully introduce changes into your life, the most useful way to do it, and it's not that you can't make a big change, it's just that it's more difficult to make a big change. Instead, you can make small changes. So these are what they call micro-changes. And there are a whole lot of things that you can do to help you to initiate and maintain those changes and build them into a sustainable practice that benefits you. And it doesn't really matter what you apply it to. It all works the same way. So there's a manufacturing process known as Kaizen. It's actually a quality improvement process. And what it consists of is making small changes that are so small that they appear to have no real benefit, but that something's slightly better after you've done it. And if you can identify K-A-I-Z-E-N, this is what Toyota used to become probably the most successful manufacturer in the world. And you can apply Kaizen to your life by making small improvements. And I apply it to what I teach. I make small improvements that I can roll back. I might introduce a practice at one class where I've got experienced students and then if I don't get a satisfactory response from them or I don't get a satisfactory response when I teach it in a class full of mixed ability students, then I'll stop it. So it's a small change. And so as a a result of that, the whole thing gets better and better. But this is the same when you're working with your own habits. What you need to do is to introduce small habits. So you can introduce these small habits into your life, small changes, and then they grow into big changes. And there's a thing called habit stacking. So this is part of the new science of habit formation. The most useful thing that you can do if you don't have one, if it's possible to do to do it, it isn't always possible to do it, is to have a morning routine. So just out of curiosity, hands up anybody who's got a morning routine. Most people are forced into it through work. Yeah. For those of you that don't have a morning routine, have a look at having a morning routine for its own sake. And the reason for that is that you can then make changes on the back of it. So let's say you get up, you make your bed, you have a shower, you you clean up the kitchen, you have your breakfast, you check your emails, whatever it might happen to be. You could do that in any order. Tragically, in our culture, most people wake up in the morning, check their emails. (laughs) And it just goes downhill from there, right? (laughs) Oh, cup of tea. Oh, there you go. See? That's yeah. Whatever happened to teas maids? Do they still have them? I don't know. That's just, just, that's, I thought that was just such a wonderful invention. So there you go. Um, there's there's. I'm going to buy myself a teas maid. I'll let you know how I get on. <laughs> if there is such a thing. So then you, you press this button and there's this cup of tea. So that's part of your morning routine. Now the way that the 
you know, the, the human beings work, is like I said, there are so many influences on us driving us to do certain things. But habit's pretty high up the list. You know, to be fair, instinct comes before habit. An intuition can override habit, as can you know, structured, rational thought, if there is such a thing. I increasingly believe that it's actually a, an illusion. Intention. Intention's a useful thing. But building a, t- building a small habit on the back of a, a routine is the best way to do it. If you have a good habit, so let's say you, know, you make your own breakfast and you put loads of nice, you know, good stuff for your like spinach, for example, in your breakfast, which is what I've been eating for the last five days, spinach for breakfast, among other things. And so there you go. So you've got this good habit. Now, if I carried that on, and I, actually, I don't see any reason why I shouldn't, so I'm probably going to carry that on. It's not going to be a little fast. It will become a, a new way. So there I am. I get up in the morning, and I cook my spinach, and that's good for me. And I, I, there's a little bit of a boost from that. I feel good. I've, I've, I've done this thing that benefits my health. So what I need to do now is, is add something else to it. So I could do a bit of yoga. There you go. So that's what's known as habit stacking. Once you've built one micro habit, you build another one, and then you've got a, a routine, and you can add habits to the routine. If you don't have a routine, it's very difficult to build regular practices. And if, if, it's, if your morning routine's too crowded, have a look at some other times of the day and build a routine in there. What are the things you do when you get back home? What are the things you do when you walk out the door? You know, what, are you, what are the things you do when you arrive at work? What are the things you do when you arrive at certain different places? And, and this, this, having this, I do this, then I do that, then I do that, is the most useful way to add useful habits And quite apart from anything else, you then have what's known as a cue. And this is the key to developing a new behaviour, is the cue. It's the the trigger that reminds you that now is the time to do this thing. Don't rely on time, unless you're somebody who's just a a total clock watcher that just works from their diary and their, their, their calendar. And some people are like that. If you're not, don't rely on time. Rely on something like location. So when I'm here, then I do this thing. Because then while you're an autopilot, you'll still do it. And then it takes, it could take years to build the habit. It doesn't matter. We perceive a lot of things to be binary. I'm on my diet, I'm off my diet, I'm exercising, I'm not exercising. And actually, nothing's binary, really. Well, there's, 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 there is binary stuff, but it's very, very simple. Most of the things in the universe are so complicated that it's not one or the other. It's lots and lots of different options. So that, that's all 
a bit of information on how you can actually get the practices into your life and then of course what practices do you do. I am still of the opinion that following the breath is the single most useful use of time as a meditation practice. So we're going to do that today. To get into the practice of meditation, the meditation of no meditation is the most useful practice you can do. And then there are a handful of other most useful practices that can be used in a number of different ways to help you to build a practice. Because at the end of the day, that's all I want. Because once you're doing it, it makes the, it makes the changes. The process makes the changes to your thoughts, emotions, responses, reactions, behavior, beliefs, all of that. And when I say change, you know, your beliefs, it isn't so much that the, the explicit things in life, the things that you've thought about change, it's that we're all burdened by a lot of unhelpful beliefs about the way that the world is. And first of all, you discover them, and then you discover they're not true, and then you become unburdened. That's the path of meditation. This is a, an exercise rather than a meditation, which is why I call it the meditation of no meditation. And in the same way that I refine everything else, I've refined the way that I teach it. I now teach it as a, a process of waiting because that's closer to what it actually feels like. And what we're waiting for is the next sound. And the advantage of that, of course, is if there isn't a sound, it doesn't matter. We're still waiting for it. And the next sound, of course, can be anywhere. So there's traffic outside, there's the occasional airplane, there's movements in the room, there's movements in the building, there's people outside from time to time, there's the sound of my voice, there's, you might be able to hear your breath. And all you're doing is listening for the next sound, whatever that might happen to be and wherever it might be. That's it. When a sound arises, you listen for the next sound. So we're just listening. And so there's very little instructions to this, so there's no way to get it wrong, really. There's no right or wrong way of doing it. We're waiting and listening, waiting and listening for the next sound. And we're not fighting against our mind doesn't matter if the mind's busy. 
doesn't matter if the mind wanders. This isn't a concentration exercise. There are no goals, there's no expectations. So there's no way of getting it wrong. something we can all do, just waiting and listening for the next sound. We're not fussed about the mind. Let it do its thing. As long as we're aware of what the next sound's going to be, all the time. That's the only thing we're doing. Staying aware of what the next sound might be. our attention to noticing a movement. It's the movement of the belly as we breathe in and out. Just at the top of the belly, just at the point where the belly meets the chest, tiny little movement. Which is the belly rising and falling. And just you're just allowing yourself to be aware of it. So it's not deep concentration. Again, it doesn't matter what the mind's doing, how busy the mind is, if the mind wanders, none of that matters. We're just staying focused on the belly rising and falling. And if you wish. To assist that process, what you do is as you're breathing in, you say in your mind, rising. As you're breathing out, you say in your mind, falling. So if you've got a busy mind, you might want to hijack the busy mind and use it to say in your mind, rising, falling.
we're doing is noticing that tiny movement in the belly. If you can't notice the sensation, you might need to put your fingers there. You notice the belly rising and falling. Rising, falling. So now if you place your tongue up against the back of your top teeth, and if you're sitting, just put your elbows by your side and make sure that your head is balanced as comfortably as possible on top of your spine. So you find the point of maximum comfort, elbows by the side, and you're noticing the breath in the nostrils now. And you can do the same thing here. You can say in your mind, rising and falling, as you notice the breath in the nostrils. Rising. Falling. Doesn't matter if your mind wanders. If your mind wanders, all you do is you come back, you notice the breath. Cool in breath warm out breath. And if you wish, you're saying in your mind rising, falling. Cool breath in, warm breath out. doesn't matter how many times the mind wanders, 
mind wanders a thousand times, gently, patiently, compassionately, return your attention to the breath a thousand times. You can be saying rising and falling in your mind throughout this. This is following the breath. Cool breath in, warm breath out. So breathing in, noticing what you can smell and taste and the sensation of being pushed into the ground by gravity and then whenever you're ready in your very own time Gently return your attention to the room. So what the modern mind does is it sets up a competition. And we started with meditation of no meditation for sound, which helps to calm many people's minds, not everybody. And then we went on to do the meditation of no meditation for the breath. So we're just noticing the belly moving. And then we moved over to following the breath. And the the thing that's different about following the breath is there's an instruction. And the instruction is, when you notice your mind's wandered, you bring your attention back to the breath. So what the mind deduces from that, incorrectly, totally, totally incorrectly, this couldn't be more wrong, we all deduce from that that the purpose of it is to stay focused on the breath. And it's not. The reason that we choose the breath is because it's so neutral and because it's so neutral it's not very compelling and so the mind keeps wandering. It's a little bit like saying to somebody let your mind do whatever it wants to do. But if you say to the average modern person let your mind do whatever it wants to do it will go into a spiral about trying to figure out what it thinks it wants to do, what's good, you know, should, it, should I be doing this, should I be doing that, should my mind be doing this, should my mind be doing that. So you've actually made it worse. If instead you say notice the breath, then the mind just does its own thing. And why do we want the mind to do its own thing? Well, that's the purpose of meditation. We want to become familiar with the mind. So let's say you've got a new neighbour and they're scary, new scary neighbour. 
until you actually speak to them, you actually don't know. They might just look scary, right? And then when you speak to them, they might come across a bit scary as well. And there's always a temptation to just avoid them. But of course, we all know human beings being what they are, if you keep contact with the neighbour in as useful a way as possible, I mean, you're not going to go and invite yourself round for a cup of tea if they're a scary neighbour, but what you will do is you'll say good morning and all of this kind of stuff, and bit by bit by bit by bit, you'll get familiar with them. And then eventually, you'll become comfortable with them. So that's the purpose of meditation, is to become familiar with the mind and then to become comfortable with the mind. And when le- when it's less about being familiar with the content, what we're thinking, the, the contents of the thought. So let's say you have a thought about sunshine. From the perspective of meditation, it's irrelevant. It could be a thought about sunshine. It could be a thought about fire engines. It could be th- a thought about Tobago. It could be a thought about Norwegian politics. The, the meditation, we're, we're indifferent to the content. You might have a slightly different approach if it's a really unsatisfactory thought pattern or something like that. There's something that you can do. Fair enough. But most of the time, what we want it to do is to keep playing on the cinema screen of the mind. We want, want it to just carry on the movie of the mind. And while it's carrying on, we're getting familiar with it. And you learn what the patterns are. And you notice yourself responding, reacting. You notice your behaviours. You notice your thought patterns. You notice how compelling they become, how deeply embedded you get in it. You notice if it's helpful or if it's unhelpful. And you're just learning about the mind, what I call the currents of the mind. Because the mind's so complicated, it's impossible to describe it as a... You've got fundamental elements of the mind. But largely, it's, it's a complex thing. And so currents in an ocean... They might move one direction one day, they might move another direction another day. And there's lots of things that have an influence on them. But as a good sailor, you're able to identify the currents. Oh, I'm in this current now, or I'm in that current. And you know where it takes you. If you're not an experienced sailor, you're in a current, you don't know where it's taking you. That's a scary thing. So the whole purpose is to become familiar with the mind. And we do that by observing it. And the way we observe it is by following the breath. That's why it's so powerful. And then what happens? Everything that happens in your life pops up to play on the internal cinema screen of the mind while you're doing following the breath doesn't matter what it is. could be things from the past, could be worries, could be fears, doubts, shame, anger, blame, guilt. It could be joy, happiness, desire, fun, whatever it happens to be. Whatever there is in your experience, you'll notice the emotions, 
you notice the thoughts, the memories, you notice the little scenarios you create in your head, the story, it's, it's, a, it's a story, and you're listening to the story. And after a while, you get used to the plot, and you become comfortable with it. And to an extent, you're able to influence the story. So we don't have absolute control, but what we do have is influence. And that is what, why we do following the breath, in a nutshell. So now, we started off with the meditation of no meditation for sound, which is pretty frictionless for almost everybody. And then we did the meditation of no meditation for the breath. And then we did two things. One is we moved our attention to the air in the nostrils. And the other is we added an instruction. And the instruction was that when the mind wanders, we come back and notice the breath. And that pendulum effect of noticing that your mind's wandered over and over again, that's how we train mindfulness. We experience mindfulness because we've noticed that our minds are wandering over and over and over again. So we become experts in noticing that the mind's wandered. There's three practices that you can do. You can do the meditation of no meditation wherever you are. For instance, I'm doing it now. So I'm talking to you guys, but I'm listening for the next sound. And you can be listening to me and listening for the next sound as well. So it's totally flexible. And you've got the meditation of no meditation for the breath. If you're a new meditator, I suggest that you spend time doing the meditation of no meditation for the breath. And for those people with busy minds, you can use the... It's a mantra. All a mantra is is, is words we use in our head when we're meditating. So the mantra of rising and falling... And then there's the following the breath meditation. When we're noticing the breath, mind wanders, bring our attention back to the breath. And you could choose either one of those, or you could do all three, and you could do them in any order you want. The order I taught them today is useful because it eases us in. Sometimes sitting down and noticing the breath is a difficult thing. There's a, a little set of meditations that you can fit into your life somehow or another. You can always start with meditation of no meditation for sound, two minutes of that at some point during the day, in, you know, in some regular routine somewhere. It doesn't have to be every day. And then we've got what I call the supporting meditations. These are meditations that I've introduced to help people to calm their minds and it's like turning the volume down. You know, if there's a volume of the mind, these meditations help to turn that volume down. And so the single most useful one is a meditation called counting the breaths. So this is counting the breaths. We're just noticing the breath. And we count each in and out breath. We use, use our inner voice, use the mind. 
we say in, a, in the in-breath, we say one in our minds, out-breath, two, three on the in-breath, four on the out-breath, up to ten. When we get to ten, start at one again. We're counting one on the in-breath, two on the out-breath, three on the in-breath, four on the out-breath, up to ten. Get to ten, start at one again. When we lose count, we start at one. So when we either get to ten, or we've lost count and we've noticed, we come back to one again. So I'll do is teach this as a traditional meditation so it's useful to sit with your elbows by your side and your head as comfortable as possible on top of your spine. If you're sitting up, if you're lying down, that's fine. Just make yourself comfortable. You may choose to keep your thumb and forefinger tips in contact. The chin mudra. This assists in relaxation and it helps us to focus on our physiology. And you're just noticing the breath. Rising and falling. In your mind you're counting the breaths. You say one on the in-breath, two on the out-breath three on the in-breath, four on the out-breath, up to ten, get to ten, start at one, lose count, start at one. So I'll begin and end this meditation with a bell. This is about a thousand years old. It's called Counting the Breaths.
Again, breathing in, noticing what you can smell and taste and hear, and the sensation of sitting, and in your very own time, gently return your attention to the room. So almost half of new students find that that calms their mind. That's the most useful single practice for people with busy minds. Possibly the meditation of no meditation for sound might be more useful in terms of calming the mind. But counting the breaths is, is a typical formal meditation practice. So if you're going to build a formal practice, that's the sort of meditation you want in your toolkit so you can sit down and calm your mind. And of course, it doesn't calm everybody's minds. There's a big chunk of people for whom actually their minds get busier when they do the counting the breaths meditation. So for that group, what I do is I teach the labelling the thoughts meditation. Now remember, when you do these meditations, you've been coming along for a while and you know them, if it's one that you're uncomfortable with and you don't fancy trying it out again, you don't have to do it. So you do your own thing. Uh, I'm aware that a lot of my more experienced students come in, sit down and just meditate and are blissfully unaware of everything that I say for an hour. Uh, and that's fine because they, they might be doing their own thing and that's perfectly valid. It's group meditation. It's about being in the space with the group that makes the difference, not really the teacher. So the meditation that works for a lot of people for whom counting the breaths doesn't work as a way of calming your mind, remembering that the purpose of it isn't to calm our mind. The purpose of it is to witness our mind, to become familiar with our mind, but it's got a side effect, so we're going to use that usefully. And the other meditation is the labelling the thoughts meditation. So what I do is I'll do two meditations on labelling. We'll do labelling the thoughts and we'll do labelling the quality of thoughts, which is a different beast altogether and is something that I've devised. So labelling the thoughts, what we do is we're, we're in the same way that we were waiting for a sound earlier, what we do is wait for a thought. So there's an element of listening. It's almost as if we're listening for our next thought. Because you don't know what it's going to be. It's going to pop up. You don't know when. It might be straight away. It might be constant. Some people have a constant mental chatter. Other people, their mind's relatively calm and then it gets busy and they have busy mind days and quiet mind days and so on and so forth. So you're just waiting, listening for thoughts to arise. And when a thought arises, what you do is you label it. And labelling is noting in your mind using a word. The word you use is thinking. So you're sitting there 
waiting for a thought. We're, we're looking at wherever the thoughts come from. Everything's got a place in the universe, and thoughts exist somewhere. Where are the thoughts? So we're waiting for the thought. And we're looking at wherever the thought comes from. That might be helpful for some people, not for others. Don't worry too much about it. Waiting for thoughts is best. Wait for a thought to arise. Thought arises and we say in our mind, thinking. And then we go back. Wait for the next thought. Another thought pops up. We say in our mind, thinking. Go back, wait for the next thought. And we repeat. We're waiting for thoughts. Thought arises. Label it thinking, using our inner voice. Go back. Wait for another thought and repeat. Let's practice this for the next few minutes. This is called labelling the thoughts. Now what we're going to do is we're going to wait for thoughts, except this time we are interested in what sort of thought they are because we've got four different labels for different qualities of thought. And the labels are fleeting, that's for a thought that just pops up, not seen it before, it's one of the, the come and go thoughts. Fleeting, repeating, this is a a thought that just keeps coming back over and over again. Fleeting, repeating, persisting. That's a thought that takes the parking space up in your head and it just stays there. So there's a thought. You wake up in the morning, there's a thought. You go to bed at night, there's a thought. That's a persisting thought. Fleeting, repeating, persisting. And finally, there's powerful thoughts that draw your mind to them that you can't extract yourself from. And they're compelling. So that's fleeting, repeating, persisting, or compelling. And don't worry if you get it wrong. doesn't matter if you get it wrong. It's not about getting it wrong or right. It's about the way that we wait for thought. We're waiting for thought a slightly different way now. Because we have to be alert to what sort of thought it is. 
Is it a fleeting thought? Is it a repeating thought? Is it a persisting thought? Or is it a compelling thought? Let's practice this for the next few minutes. It's called labelling the quality of thoughts. Repeating, repeating, persisting, or compelling. Just let your mind go free. Just let the mind do whatever it wants. Go wherever it wants. Noticing the breath. Noticing whatever you can smell as you breathe in and taste and the sounds around you, and the sense of sitting, and an awareness of where you are in the room. And gently return your attention to your surroundings. So that last practice, the labelling the quality of thoughts... Uh, that's a serious sleep inducer and what it does is it, it you are actually looking closer at the origin of thoughts uh, Jung thought that thoughts were actually dreams that come out into our awareness and there's it's very interesting because the dream us has thoughts 
the dream us is basically like us. It's 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 not aware it's in a dream, but it's indif- indistinguishable from the external us. So the way I, I my experience is simply that if we if we do that last meditation and you're looking, or, or my mind's very calm and I'm looking at thought, waiting for thought to arise, trying to be as close to the arising of a thought in my awareness as I can, it is a dreamy place, without a doubt. And the, the way I see it, just my personal experience, it's as if one of these dream thoughts pops up and then once it pops up it gets a little bit of momentum and distinguishes itself from the general ocean of of thoughts and dreams and words and emotions that makes up the subconscious mind, which is actually all of the mind, really, depending on how you want to define mind. So that's a really useful practice for many people to help to calm their mind because it takes you to this happy, dreamy place, which is the origin of thought. Okay, so those, those, are the, those are the key meditations that I teach at the moment. That's what I call meditating the modern way. <laughs>